Well, turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 7. And the main thing we're going to see in these verses is the qualifications for a pastor. What, what qualifications a pastor must meet in order to be accepted into that office. Now, I was working on this sermon for a while. Yesterday, I happened to be visiting somebody in D.C., and I was working at a restaurant there. And the thought occurred to me, I wonder what these people around me, who I'm presuming most of which are not Christians, would think about this idea of of qualifications to being a pastor. And it occurred to me that probably, in many cases, they would have thought it was ridiculous. Because, let's face it, pastors don't generally have the greatest reputation in society in general. I mean, when people, and, and think about it, you can't blame people for that. Where do we see pastors in the news today? Well, we see them because they're maybe famous TV preachers and they're making tons of money and they're getting it from people who really can't afford food. Or, or we see pastors in the news today because of sex scandals or whatever. Lots of illustrations of bad pastors abound in our world today. And it's no wonder that if people thought, oh, moral qualifications for being a pastor, well, that could seem somewhat ridiculous to many. That's really unfortunate, though, because when pastors do things that ruins their reputations and, and drags their name down into the gutter, what, what happens? They drag the gospel down with it. They drag the gospel down with it. If, if, what, if they have no reputation amongst the world, then who in the world is going to give any credence to the words that they speak? And that's a tragedy. Because the words they speak, or at least the words they should speak, if they're faithful to Scripture, are the words of life. They're the words that we need. They're the words that give life to our dead and dying souls. Now, do you know where the Bible places blame on this phenomenon of of bad pastors dragging their name down and then dragging the gospel down with it? Do you know where the Bible would lay some significant blame? The answer might surprise you. Uh, in, in the book of 2 Timothy, chapter uh, 4, Paul says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having their itching ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Where's Paul placed the blame there for all these teachers who are teaching bad things and, and doing bad things? Where's he placed the blame? On the people the people who call them to be their teachers. Now, don't get me wrong. God will indeed hold bad pastors responsible for their bad pastoring. That will happen. The Bible says that pastors give an account for those who God have entrusted to their care. It's something that Steve and I take seriously. We understand that. But you are responsible for putting yourself under good pastors. You are responsible for putting yourself under good pastors. Now, you might think, okay, well... I just won't put myself under anybody. No, the Bible doesn't let you do that for two reasons. One is it's just plain impossible. We, by nature, follow people. That's what we do. The Bible also expects that you have leaders in your life. You're going to put yourself under somebody. But you must choose wisely. You must choose wisely for the sake of your own souls. And even more, you must choose wisely for the sake of the gospel. For the sake of the gospel... Follow good pastors. Don't follow bad ones. Now, with that in mind, let's turn to 
1 Timothy chapter 3, where we see the qualifications for the pastor. We're actually going to see four things. We're going to see, one, the nature of the office, two, the nobility of the office, three, the qualifications for the office, and then finally, some application. 1 Timothy chapter 3, I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, for if he does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. He must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Let's pray. Father, we pray once again that you would illuminate our hearts to the meaning and understanding of your word. Help us see wonderful things, and help us apply this passage to our lives in concrete, tangible ways. Lord, we pray for our church, that we'd be marked for generations to come by faithful leaders who will lead your people to see the glory of the gospel, and that would be a light to the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, first thing we're going to see, the nature of the office. Now, this is not immediately in this passage doesn't really so much talk about the nature of the office as it does just assume the nature of the office. But we've got to nail down exactly what Paul is talking about when he says an overseer. We've got to do that so that this passage can map onto our lives together as a church. We want to understand what he's talking about so that we can understand how we actually apply. Because Paul's not giving just sort of you know, abstract teaching. Paul's giving instructions. Think when you pull out your Ikea furniture and you get some instructions. I've got to follow this this, these directions, you know, you, they're practical, they're tangible. You do what it says, and you get the good result. We, these are instructions for the church as to how we ought to organize ourselves. We need to know what he's talking about in order to follow his instructions carefully. And first thing, when he says overseer, what he means there is, is really the same thing as a pastor, an elder, a shepherd, a teacher. All of those words are used synonymously in Scripture to mean the same office. If you say, oh, that's an elder, you could also say, oh, that's an overseer. The word sometimes translated bishop, too. If your Bibles, it says bishop, it's the same word, overseer. That's an overseer, bishop, that's a a pastor, that's a shepherd, that's a teacher in the church. They all mean the same thing, the the same office, somebody set apart uh, as the, uh, the pastor. Now, said somebody there, but we also see something else about this office, uh, that it actually, if we look in Scripture, we never see one person doing this office in a church by themselves. That is never, ever the pattern. The most prominent word for this office in the Bible is definitely the word elder. If I say the qualifications for an elder, I know it says overseer. I might start speaking elder more because that's what I'm used to. That's what Scripture normally says. It means the same thing. But when you, you look in the Bible, at every time the word elder is used, guess what? It is always plural. 
That means it's always referring to a group of people, never one lone individual. Elders are like grapes. You never see them just by themselves. Not like apples, but they're like grapes. You see a a team of them together. That's the consistent pattern that we see in Scripture. Let me just read you a few passages. Titus 1.5. Paul says, I left you in Crete so that you may appoint elders. Plural. James 5. If anyone is sick among you, let him call the elders. Plural. The church. 1 Peter 5. I exhort the elders among you. And then he says, be subject to your elders, which means believe the word when they're preaching it to you. What we see then in the Bible is not this idea of a, a central CEO type leader in the church. What we see in the Bible is a team approach, multiple godly qualified men caring for teaching the congregation together. It's significant too, though, that, that probably, well, certainly, really, that, that these aren't paid staff of the church. These are small churches back then. They're not going to be able to support maybe even one pastor, let alone a team of pastors. So when the Bible talks about elder, pastor, it's not assuming paid ministry, paid staff that's going to be employed by the church. Now, the Bible is assuming that there will be some paid staff in the church. That's not something we've just invented. Uh, I like that idea. Appreciate it. Thank you for your support. It allows me to give myself to preaching and teaching and take care of my family. Um, But this office of an overseer is broader than just who gets a paycheck from the church. There can be lay elders, people who are called and equipped by God to do this task, and yet not necessarily get paid by the church. That's an important qualification, too. So when you see overseer, don't just think who's the main pastor, one single pastor of the church. Certainly don't think that. That's unbiblical. But also don't think, okay, who are the people who are set aside as employees of the church, or, not, or, or paid by the church, rather, so that they can do this work? Because that's not in view either. Okay, that's the nature of the office. A group of godly men called by God, set apart to be caring for the congregation as a team. Some of them likely won't staff at a church, but definitely not all. Point, that's point number one. Point number two, the nobility of the office. Look there what it says, second half of verse one. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. He desires a noble task. Now, if you pay attention to the language, it doesn't mean that the desire is necessarily noble. People can desire to be an elder for all sorts of reasons that aren't necessarily good. They may be pride or or being puffed up, whatever. But the task that they desire unto is good. It is a noble task. The word there for noble means good, beautiful, pleasing. Pleasing to God should be pleasing to others as well. It's a noble task. Now, we get a hint of why Paul would say it is a noble task in the way he introduces this this sentence. The sentence, if anyone desires to be in an office of an overseer, he desires a noble task. The way Paul introduces that is significant. Look there at the very beginning of verse 1. He says, this saying is trustworthy. The saying there is that if anyone desires, you know, dot, dot, dot. That's the saying. He's saying this saying is trustworthy. Now, you read Paul's letters, you see that there are these trustworthy sayings that, that he gives to the church. Probably, these are sayings, these are sentences that the church would repeat amongst themselves. Things that we would, we, the, the church would be used to saying and used to believing. It's kind of the beginning here of a confession, a creed. 
trustworthy sayings, things that the church would accept and and know and, and have learned. Well, here, it's a trustworthy saying that if anyone aspires to be an office of an overseer, he desires a noble task. Interesting. Every other trustworthy saying in Scripture gets right at the heart of the gospel. So, key one, uh, Keith preached on this a few weeks ago, chapter 1, verse 15. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. That is a trustworthy saying. That's a beautiful saying, too. Anything more beautiful than that fact? That Jesus came into the world? Jesus did not hold on to his, his appearance as the glory of God. He, he emptied himself. He took on human flesh. He came into the world, lived his life perfectly, and died on the cross, receiving the punishment that we deserve for sinners. He traded places with sinners, took their punishment so they could receive that glory. That That is a trustworthy saying. That is a beautiful saying. And I I hope and pray that you understand it's beautiful and you've trusted in Jesus. Paul says, here's another trustworthy saying. The trustworthy saying is that the office of an elder is a noble office. Why is Paul wanting to put the nobility of the office right up there next to the gospel? It's not the gospel, but it's right up there around gospel truth. Why is he wanting to do that? I think the answer is that the gospel is the most beautiful message. And therefore, the proclaiming of the gospel, the office of proclaiming the gospel, is a noble office. It's a noble task. Because the gospel is beautiful. Proclaiming the gospel is a good and worthy thing to do. We we see this again, uh, Paul says in Romans 10. How will they hear unless there is a preacher? How will there be a preacher unless one is sent And it says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. It's a good thing to be in this office of an elder preaching and teaching. So that's the nobility of the office. Now, the qualifications for the office. A noble ministry requires noble pastors. And Paul makes that explicit in here. Notice verse 2. After he talks about how If anyone aspires to the office of an overseer, he desires a noble task. Verse 2 begins, therefore. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. Above reproach is really the summary of everything else he says. Because the office is a noble office, because it's a good and beautiful thing, declaring God's word, the people who do it ought to be beyond reproach. They ought to have a certain standard that they adhere to. Paul says later, uh, he talks about not falling into a snare of the devil. He basically reiterates the idea again that pastors need to be beyond reproach. He says they need to do that so they don't fall into a snare of the devil. The, the, The devil lays a snare. That snare is that if he can bring down the leaders, he can discredit the gospel. Paul wants to protect the reputation of the gospel so he guards the office of the pastor. He says, no, there needs to be a standard here to protect the, the reputation of the gospel. And by the way, perhaps it felt self-serving of me to be preaching earlier on the, the nobility of the office. Oh, I'm, I'm bringing you a message that my office as a pastor is a noble office. And Well, it did feel a little odd, but, you know, I'm just going to preach all the way through, so I've got to say whatever it says. However, the the bulk of the sermon is really not the nobility of the office. It's the the standard 
which a pastor ought to adhere to. So I'm really bringing to you uh, the qualifications that I've got to adhere to, or you should fire me, or you should leave the church. And seriously, I mean that. Uh, this is not an easy passage for, for, for me and, and others who, who aspire to this office. This is a, a standard that God calls us to. And we as a church need to take that standard seriously. And this is what you should demand of your pastors. You should hold your pastors to this standard. You should do that not simply for the good of your own souls or the good of the church. You should do that for the reputation of the gospel. It, it matters. Now, let's go through and see what Paul says more particularly. First thing, an overseer must be above reproach, meaning he must be free from any serious blame. Not perfect, of course, not demanding perfection, but it means that shouldn't have the reputation of being someone who is always getting into trouble. Should, should be somebody that no serious charge against them can stick. That really sums up the rest of the passage here. He should be the husband of one wife. Literally, that says a one-woman man. It's a one-woman man. That's his character. Or you could also translate that a one-wife husband. So many pastors today get into trouble with sex, don't they? You see in the news, they've once solicited a prostitute or in bed with a church member. And I've seen how that wreaks havoc on a church when that happens. Truth is, though, someone's disqualified to be a pastor long before they actually end up in bed with somebody who's not their wife. They're disqualified to be a pastor when they don't have that singular affection for their wife. So pornography, being flirtatious, not having proper boundaries... That would disqualify somebody from being a pastor. Now, can a person, can a person be a pastor or an elder uh, if they've been divorced? That's debated in churches. My answer is yes, but. So I don't think this passage disqualifies somebody from, from having been divorced. It's a, a one-woman man. That, that's what the word is. It, it's talking about the, the desire they have for their wife, their orientation now. That, that's what the, the words mean. Nevertheless, we should exercise caution. Divorce often raises concerns that the person, why did they get divorced? What was happening in their previous marriage? Were they not leading well? Now, we believe people can grow and change, don't we? <laughs> to be a Christian is to believe people can change, of course. But we do want to, because the reputation of the gospel is at stake, exercise sufficient caution. Make sure that a person is tested, as the Bible says. We want sufficient evidence that the person is truly a one-woman man. Can an elder be single? Can you appoint a single person to be an elder or a pastor? Again, I think the answer is yes, but. A person can be a one-woman man who just doesn't know who she is yet. But he has to be having that same mentality. He can't be running from relationship to relationship. He can't be avoiding marriage because he wants to avoid commitment. has to be singularly focused on the Lord and, and be willing to be joined to a godly, godly wife, even if he doesn't know who she is yet. But not only does he need to have a good reputation with his marriage, he also needs to have a good reputation with his parenting. Look there at verse 4. It says... He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? And 
what he's saying there is that that a pastor needs to be a good parent. Needs to raise their children well. Now, that's important for a couple reasons. It's important so that the person would be beyond reproach, right? It's also important because there is so much overlap between pastoring and parenting. Please believe me when I say that. I speak as one who is both. I'm a pastor and a parent. And and there's a lot in which there feels like there's a huge overlap between those two roles. Think about it. What do children need? Children need a loving authority. Someone who's willing to tell them no for their good. Children need a bigger vision, someone to have a bigger vision for them spiritually than they have for themselves. Children need somebody to pray with them and for them, to teach them, to correct them when they make mistakes, to protect them. What do congregations need? They need the same thing. And if a man can't provide that for his children, well, he's not going to be able to provide that for his church either. If someone doesn't engender respect in their household such that their family wants to follow them, they're not going to do that in the church either. Now, no person is going to be a perfect parent. I think churches, especially today, are prone to skip that one. They're prone to look at a pastor only in what he does publicly uh, on Sunday mornings, how his public life is. This pastor is saying, no, the private life, the ability to parent It's going to say a whole lot more about the person's ability to pastor than just what they look like. How sharp is their tie on Sunday morning? Verse 2. Go back there. There's one I want to point out in connection with these. He must be hospitable. See that there? Respectable, hospitable. Hospitality means loving the stranger. Opening up your life to be known by others. Hospitality is, is important in the Bible, and it shows up in some of the most interesting places. First Peter 4, Peter says, the end of all things is near. So what's he say? Be hospitable. Really? End of all things is near. The end of the world is coming. So be hospitable. The, the hospitality is important in the Bible, and elders should, of course, be setting an example in that regard. But there's another reason that why I think it is even more important for elders to be hospitable, and that is they need to be setting an example for others in the way they uh, act in their marriage and the way they parent. But how will that example be seen unless they invite other people into their lives? A man who puts up walls around his his home, his family, and says no one will enter is not going to be an effective elder. I know how important this is because of how I have grown through this. I think about other men in my life who have opened their lives up to me and have helped me grow. I remember going over a man's house. Ironically, this man lived actually a few miles away from Ephesus. So it connects here to the, the book of 1 Timothy, written to Timothy in Ephesus. So anyway, this this man I knew who lived right next to Ephesus. I went over his house for a weekend, and I remember just watching him, the way he interacted with his wife and the way he interacted with his children. And there was something about that that I wanted to catch that I couldn't have learned in books or seminars. I learned by watching him. So thankful that he was willing to open up his life to let other people in and grow from it. And that's what elders ought to do. Elders need to open up their lives to others so that they can learn from them. Now, please, don't have unrealistic expectations here. Of course, elders are not superhuman. It's hard with young children who are sick every other weekend and, and all these other things. Don't, don't expect uh, something unrealistic. But, but a man should be leaning towards hospitality. 
He should embrace the idea of life-on-life discipleship. That's how we grow. According to the Bible, that's how we grow. We need the, the public teaching of God's word. That's why elders must be able to teach. We'll get to that. But we also need that life-on-life getting together, seeing the examples of others. Verse 2 also says that elders must be sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, not a drunkard, not violent. Basically, an elder must be able to control his own emotions and not have his emotions control him. He must rein in his emotions for the sake of a greater goal, namely advancing the gospel. See, an elder is going to have to go to elder meetings and share his heartfelt ideas and then have them all shot down and not get angry. An elder needs to, is going to find himself in a place of caring for somebody, pouring his life out to this, this precious uh, sheep who he loves, and then be accused of being unloving and told that it's all his fault. An elder is going to be falsely accused and misunderstood, and he can't get angry. He has to realize that it's not about him. It's not about this goal in being an elder is not so that he can be stroked and made made to feel good. It's about the service of the gospel. Verse 3, he must not be a lover of money. Instead, he must be generous. We see in the Bible that people get into trouble when they love money. But the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. The man must aspire to the office, not aspire to get rich. He can't do both of those things at the same time. Now, this is not saying that he has to take a vow of poverty. It's not that he can't have money. It's that he can't love money. Verse 3 also says he must be able to teach. It's really important. It's interesting. That one qualification stands out amongst all the others because it's the only thing that shouldn't be broadly true of all believers. We'll see in a minute that I want to make the point that everything on this list should be true of every Christian man and, in a sense, true of every Christian. Except for this mark of being able to teach. Why, why this mark alone stands out, marks elders as being different? Why not? Magnetic personality. Why not a certain charisma? Why not their ability to tell funny jokes? I mean, those things would grow a church perhaps better. No, God wants the leaders to be marked by their ability to teach the word of God. And there's a a striking logic to this. Because who is really head of the church? Christ is, right? So leaders need to be leaders by opening up their Bibles and explaining the words of Christ to the congregation so that the congregation grows. That's how the leader leads. Doesn't lead by just having ideas and saying, hey, I want to run with this. This is my idea. Even if those ideas are biblically sound and good, a leader leads by opening up the Bible and explaining the words of Christ. So if you you have elders who maybe actually find godly people and maybe thinking biblically, if they can't open up the Bible and explain it to others, they're not qualified to be elders in the church. And if the church looks to those people who maybe perfectly fine Christians and and have good upstanding jobs in the world, if the Bible looks to those sorts of people, sooner or later it's going to drift off the focus of the gospel and the word of God as being the, the standing of the church. Now, Does this mean, what does it mean able to teach? We have to have realistic expectations for that. It doesn't mean that every elder, again, we're also remembering that we 
the Bible assumes there could be lay elders, people who are not paid by the church but are recognizing it as elders. What's the standard that we should have for able to teach? What does that mean? Does it mean that the person has to be able to, you know, keep a congregation spellbound, hanging on their every word for a a 55-minute sermon? Um, Thankfully, no, (laughs) I don't think. I think I can do that. What it means is that they're able to open their Bibles and make a biblical argument to other people. They could be able to teach one-on-one. They could be able to teach in a small group. And I think it also means that if push came to shove, if I lost my voice, which happened about two years ago, and couldn't talk, if, if every leader uh, wasn't, everyone who normally preaches wasn't able to, to come, that the elder should be able to open up the Bible and say something that would be both true and helpful. Doesn't mean that it's going to be the best sermon everybody's heard. Doesn't mean that they're the most logical person to be preaching week after week. It means they can make a biblical argument and explain from Scripture what is true. I think that should be the standard. And that's important to know because if, if we... Uh, do appoint lay elders. I want you to have a realistic expectation for what able to teach actually means. Okay, now what's the application we can learn from this? How can we apply this passage to our lives together? Well, first, as we look at these qualifications, and we haven't gone into detail about everyone, but we've gotten a sense of them, I think we'd agree that they're weighty. It's a high standard. It's a tall order. When I was being interviewed with my first position as a church and being set apart for that office, I remember uh, my pastor at the time read this qualification and asked me if I felt like I, it, it described me. And I remember thinking, this is weighty. I was tempted to say no. I had to ask for qualification. What do you mean by that? And he was able to explain it, worked out. I did end up going to that job. But, but it's a weighty uh, qualification. It, it's talking about a tall order. And and that's why, in the beginning, it says that a man would aspire to this office. That that word aspire means to stretch and reach up. A man's going to reach up there. He's going to want to grow into this. It's something to aspire to, something to strive after. But on the other hand, we we look at this list, we see also, it's true, that, that except for able to teach, there's not a thing on this list It isn't supposed to be true of every believer. So what we have here in the qualifications for an elder is not that an elder is going to be a different level of holy, a a super Christian. No, an elder is just a good example of what every Christian ought to be. There are no sins that are acceptable for lay people but are not acceptable for pastors. It's the same standard of holiness. God has the same standard of holiness for both. I think what that means then is that this list should be an example for us. It should be something that we can look at our lives and evaluate how are we doing spiritually. Where do we need to grow? So you should look at this life and ask yourself, where where are you the weakest? Where, Where do you most need to grow? And then after you've kind of identified where you are the weakest, here's what else you need to do. You need to ask the question, who in this church can you look to as an example to help you grow? So, I'll give you some examples. If you think you're not loving your spouse with a singular uh, affection that you ought to, look at Keith. He's loving his spouse well. 
didn't tell these men that I was going to mention this, so going off of them. He's doing a good job at that. You can learn from following him. Not, you realize you need to grow in raising your children well? Look at Israel and Arlinda. They're doing a good job at that. You can learn and grow from them. You want to learn how to be passionate, but have be controlled in your emotions? Look at our brother Isaac, who is a really passionate man. But yet I've never seen him not controlling his emotions so that they can serve the greater good of the gospel. You want to see how you can open up your life to others? Look at Will and Ayla. They're doing a great job at that. They're opening up their lives to others. Others are coming in and seeing good things and learning from them. Their examples in hospitality. So I want to challenge everybody to look at this list and learn and grow. And, and the, the way, because elders are to be examples to others to help them grow, that tells us that the pattern of discipleship in the Bible is that we would see examples and grow from them. So see where you're weak, find people who are strong in that, learn from them, watch them and grow. And I also want to challenge the men. Why do I want to challenge the men in particular? Well, because last week we looked at the fact that, that only men are to be elders. This Does this mean that God likes men better? Absolutely not. But God, we saw, is Trinity. God is the Father, Son, and Spirit. Three persons equal in honor and glory. And yet the Father, Son, and Spirit, they take on different roles. The Father is the one who calls the shots. He tells the Son to go to the earth. They have a different ordering. Equal in glory and honor, different roles. And then God creates people in his image. And he make, creates the men and women equal in dignity and value, but he assigns them different roles. And the role for men is to be elders. It's a role they, they can be. Not all men are, but men can aspire to this. So men, I want to encourage you. Reach out and aspire to this role of an elder. It is a good thing. It is a good thing. And the church needs you to reach out and aspire to this role. Three questions I have for you. I get these from a pastor named Thabiti. He says these are the three questions I should ask you, and I think he's right. So men, Christian men, have you ever thought about being an elder? Maybe you don't realize that it is a good thing. Think about this. At the, you get to the end of your life, what will you rather have given yourself to? Would you rather have given yourself to watching all of the, the episodes of your favorite mediocre TV show? having the perfect set of abs, having, having made it to the top of your profession younger than anybody else? Or do you want to have given yourself to the faithful care and service of God's church? What would be better to give yourself to? So friends, consider aspiring. Men, consider aspiring to this office of an elder. Men, have you considered that your lack of desire to be an elder might be an indication of spiritual complacency or misdirection? We all are tempted to want comfort, ability to be anonymous, and ease, all of which we don't get as leaders. That's where we're tempted. Is it because you love comfort and don't really want to be godly? Number three, have you ever considered what would happen to the church, to the sheep, if they had no shepherd? Does your heart respond in the same way as Jesus's at the sight of shepherdless sheep? Do you want to do something about it? Men, give yourself to your marriage and to your family. Be self-controlled. 
Be opening up your lives to others. Be learning your Bibles well so you can explain it to others. Now, we hired Steve a while ago, and it's a great benefit. I've seen the, the advantages of it already. I love it. But we were really clear when we hired Steve that it wasn't to get people off the hook from leading and serving in the church. No, we hired Steve so we'd have more resources to equip you for the work of the ministry. And let me be clear, too, that we want to equip, equip everybody for the work of the ministry. So men and women, if you want to grow in serving the local church, we, we want to put you on our schedule. We want to meet with you. We want to do everything we can to help you grow in serving and loving the local church. But we also feel a particular call to train up men for this office of being an elder. Paul says to uh, Timothy, he says, teach these truths to other faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Friends, we can't obey this command unless you are willing to be taught, unless we can invest in you to be able to teach others. Now, I want to end this way. I want to end with one more qualification for an elder, which is really a qualification for all Christians. And we actually see that in the beginning of this book, uh, but I want to just reiterate that. When, when you aspire to be an elder, and when you're growing in that way, do you think you're going to see yourself as remarkably holy? Wow, I'm just so holy now. No, you're not. You're going to see yourself as weak. And as you aspire to be an elder, and as really as you just try to grow as a Christian, you're going, to, you're going to see some things that you didn't see before. You're going to realize that it's harder to raise your family than you thought it would be. You're going to realize that some sins you thought, oh, I can, I can easily walk away from that, are actually a lot, have a lot of a stronger hold on you than you thought they would. You're going to see that you're not as good as you thought you were. And therefore, you need Paul's first trustworthy statement. That Christ came to the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. That's St. Paul's mature reflection on his spirituality. And why will seeing ourselves as sinners not lead us to despair? Because Jesus is a greater Savior than we are a sinner. So friends, the first mark of an elder, or indeed any Christian, is to know this. No matter how high you aspire to in the Christian life, you will never get beyond this truth. Christ came into the world to save sinners, and that means me. Elders, to be an elder is a noble task, but I don't want to pull any punches. It is a hard task. When it goes well, you'll be tempted to put your identity in it. I'm good because I've done this well. And when it goes badly, you'll be tempted to despair. Elders, like all Christians, need to find their identity in Christ. They need to know that Christ came in the world to die for sinners, and their righteousness before God is not based on how well they elder or how well they're a Christian or how well they serve others. It's based on the finished work of Christ. Now, maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian and you don't know about this. You don't know how you would actually live your life not going up and down based upon what people think of you or how well you've performed in an area or how much money you have. Well, friends, let me tell you about Jesus, that he invites us to trust in him and to have his righteousness, to have his life, to be found in him and to know him. That means trusting that Christ died on the cross for us, believing that his death was in our place, trusting in that is our only way to get to God. And then he, he brings us to himself, that we have everything we need in him. And then we can live our lives out of that reality. So men, aspire to the office of an elder. Do it for the sake of your own soul. Do it for the sake of the church. And do it even more for the sake of the gospel. The gospel that you love and by which you are saved. 
And congregation, let's look to people who meet these qualifications to be elders in our church. Let's do that for the sake of our own souls. And let's also do that for the reputation of the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and the wisdom that it has for us. We pray that we would see how your word is different than the the agenda set by the world. And that we would be diligent and careful to follow you in all ways. Lord, we pray that there would be elders among us who are qualified to serve in that role. We pray that we would be able to formally recognize them as such. And we pray you'd raise up even more. That your gospel would be adorned. And it would promote the love for Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.